Welcome to Window of Opportunity, a Stargate rewatch podcast. I'm Carrie. I'm Rachel. And today we're talking about Stargate SG-1 Season 4, Episode 12, Tangent. Which is really kind of a tangent. I think the title definitely fits with this one today. Yes. 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 When we get to the episode title at the end, I was like, yep, this works. Yep. <laughs> and yes. In multiple ways, actually. Oh, not just one. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. definitely mm-hmm. did not remember it uh, okay. as per usual. Um, okay. And it's it really is just one of those that like it doesn't. I mean, as far as I can remember, because, of course, I don't remember anything else, doesn't seem to further plot anywhere it's just kind of like hey episode which reminds me of just the ones that they used to be like okay we just got to take it down a little bit we just got to make a little lighter episode yeah a little bit a little bit of almost death but you know everything's fine yeah well you know this is back during the whole you know 21 22 episode seasons when not every episode was advancing a plot necessarily like an overarching plot it was just here's stuff that happened which i actually have an email that has an interesting perspective on what the episodes are as it relates as it specifically as it relates to like the jack sam stuff we've been we've been discussing since you know divide and conquer and stuff so i'm like oh i'll be interesting i'll be interested to hear your perspective on it oh lovely i love emails that'll be fun yes yes Yes. all right well let's get to it Okay, well, actually, before we get into the episode, Rachel, you sent me a very disturbing text yesterday (laughs) that I think you need to tell our listeners about, which I realized it was like a picture text. So, and this is a podcast, so it might not work so well, but uh, please do your best to explain to our listeners what you texted me about. Okay, it was, it was a Monday night. In the evening. No, so I I am definitely absolutely 100% guilty of just doing the mindless scrolling through Facebook, Instagram. I don't have much of a social media presence, but I am so guilty of just my default, hey, I have some time, is just right through scrolling. And mm-hmm. I came across this one, you know, screen cap of, you know, somebody's Twitter feed that was like a Twitter feed posting an article of something from, you know, somewhere down rabbit hole. And it was an article about this guy that went fishing that captured a sea creature that freaked him out and he had no idea what to call it. And so the article is just man catches sea monster and doesn't know what it is. And I sent it to (laughs) Carrie because this sea monster looks really 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 close to a gold <laughs> it does except it's like flesh colored which is even creepier like, like it it had like teeth and it had like the little fin things on the side and it was long and snake-like and i was like oh my god they exist in real life and on top of that it's in australia where everything <laughs> wants to kill you so that kind of fits Yes. And so we were joking back and forth about like, oh my God, we need to find out what this is. And I want to find out what sound it makes. So maybe we can find out what the, what the sound effects and the gold <laughs> is and all that stuff. But as far as I got into researching, I found out that it's actually called a worm gobby. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how it looked to me. Worm gobby or eel gobby. Apparently it's a whole bunch of different kinds of them and they're freaky. Yeah, it was gross. I was like, what is it's why why are there gould in Australia? Like what <laughs> is happening? 
Why do gold exist in real life? And we concluded this text conversation. Anywhere Australia would be the place they would exist. (laughs) Yes. Then we both concluded this text conversation with being like, not going to Australia. Nope. 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 (laughs) No thanks. I'm good. No. Which I actually kind of want to go anyway, so I'm gonna have to retract that statement. But at least not for now. (laughs) Oh yeah, I know. Give it, give it a little while, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But how about that? If there's anyone that actually knows what these things are or has heard of them or, hey, if you just want to look it up and agree with us, then it just looks weird. Look up Google images for worm gobby. G-O-B-Y. Yeah. It's gross. But yeah. If we have any Australian listeners, uh, I don't know. Let us know if if it's a thing, if you've ever seen one. Yeah. Seen one, caught one. Are they tasty? We don't know. I don't think they'd be very tasty. I don't know. Nah, no. <laughs> don't think hot till you try it. <laughs> it works in so many situations. <laughs> oh. oh, all right. Well, shall we finally get to this week's episode? Ah, oh, let's do. Okay, this episode, Tangent, originally aired on September 15th, 2000. It was written by Michael Cassett or Cassutt, uh, C-A-S-S-U-T-T, Cassett? Maybe? Sure, yeah, okay. sounds good. Uh, directed by Peter DeLuise. And on the commentary, we have Peter and visual effects supervisor James Titchener. Is there a Peter cameo? I no, I don't think there is in this one. At least I didn't see one, and he didn't point it out if there was, which he usually does. Oh. So I think this is a rare Peter DeLuise-less episode. Maybe he found so. himself on the cutting room floor. Maybe. I mean, there's not a lot of places for him to be, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Mm-hmm. Um so in this episode, when Jack and Tilk take an SGC modified ghoul glider out for a test flight, they lose control and are sucked deep into outer space by a ghoul tracking device. It's up to the rest of the team to figure out a way to rescue them before they run out of oxygen and life support and are lost in space forever. Forever. Forever, ever. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> okay, so... We open with Sam, Jack, Daniel, and Major Davis standing out on a runway along with various airmen. And Sam comments that Tilk was ordered to push the envelope. I'm sure he'll be back soon. So Tilk is off doing something. Mm -hmm. And we see Jack scanning the sky with some binoculars. And then a black Hummer pulls up and Major Davis goes to open the door, letting out General Hammond and another gentleman who is soon introduced as Lieutenant General Vidrine. And this is Vancouver actors bingo for Stephen Williams as Lieutenant General Vadrine. He's been Yay. in like all like all of all of the things. I'm sure you recognize he X Files, like Supernatural, 21 Jump Street, even back with Peter Deloise. So yeah, he's been in like all of the things. So I wonder if he just called him up and was like, Hey, you free today? I he didn't say anything. He just mentioned that like he'd worked with him, but not anything about casting. But I mean, maybe, who knows? Maybe he did look familiar. Yeah. Um, and then we sort of get a funny back and forth after everybody's introduced of like Colonel General, Major General, Doctor, you know, just from <laughs> that funny thing. Uh, this from, whole scene had a lot of uh, close up cuts, which I it was enough for me to notice. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, 
it's funny. I think it, I think it comes from the movie Spies Like Us, where it's like general, general, major, general, and that kind of back and forth thing. I think is from that movie. Is that is that like the one that. where they just call each other doctor, doctor? Could doctor, be. Doctor, yeah. Doctor. Yes. Yes, I think that's yeah, it. Yes, that's okay. what I felt. That was reminiscent of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Jack tries to make a joke and doesn't go over very well. So he calls to Tilk over the radio, like, where are you? And he tells them to, uh, look at like the Southwest, I think, as he comes like screaming by in a death glider, buzzing right over their heads, blowing out the windows in the cars. If you know it is in the background, mm. <laughs> like windows went kaboom. Uh, and they're like, Wah! uh, and then he's like ordered to like take another pass low and slow and Major Davis, who looks very pleased, tells the Dream that this is the X-301 intercept. It's a hybrid of the Death Gliders that SG-1 were rescued in after the explosion of Apophis' ships. And good old American know-how. And so this is, like, the beginning of the SGC's new, like, battle strategy for engaging with Gould ships. Which, I mean, it's one thing, but... It's, you know, it's a start. And so uh, General Vidrine asks how it flies and Sam starts to go in the super technical explanation. And he's like, that's that's fine as long as it flies. And then we get a very lovely shot of like Jack turning back to the camera going, oh, yes, it does fly. And just yeah. oh, yes. <laughs> I have to say that I am really surprised that SG-1 is the one testing the plane because. Their their primary function is like the you know first contact off world exploration mm-hmm. kind of things. So it I I it was weird to me that there wasn't some sort of specific other task force. I mean I guess it makes sense thing. for like Tilk to be there since it is Gould technology at its core. But yeah, why he wasn't maybe loaned out to another team for testing then i guess the stakes wouldn't be quite as high but yeah like i mean it's still high because it's tilk but if there's so many moving parts to the sgc it i mean of course it's for plot and the show is called sg1 but it still does kind of amaze me that sg1 is like the flagship for everything instead of being like no no this is you are the off-world exploration people that you yeah you meet the people you get the technologies you make the relationships and then we play with it (laughs) yeah i mean yeah i can see i can see that yeah 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 so we come back from the opening credits and tilk has landed the 301 and we if you look in the background where the special effect is it's like it hovers there's no like landing gear on it i don't know if you noticed Mm -hmm. It's hovering, mm-hmm. which is cool, uh, and has joined everyone else on the runway. And Jack is completely overcome by Tilk's enthusiasm for how well the 301 performed. Yeah. Uh, General Vadrine seems a little skeptical that one aircraft can take on a fleet of Gould ships. And they're like, well, that's what all this testing is for. So next up on the testing docket is Jack joining Tilk in the cockpit for a sort of fake battle scenario for weapons testing. And the control room back at the SGC will serve as mission control. So the testing starts and the 301 takes off and they start to head towards the target area. We are told that the 301 has stealth technology. So a special transmitter was installed to be able to track it for this testing phase. It's also equipped with two very powerful missiles, which will be made even more powerful with an Equita enhanced warhead and a frequency modulator to be able to penetrate the Gould shields. Yay. 
Uh, um, unfortunately, things start going wrong very quickly. Uh, at one of the control computers at the SGC, we see like tracking failure and Jack and Tilk overshoot the target area and Tilk advises that he is no longer in control. And also the ejection controls are not responding. Jack calls it into mission control as they very quickly head out into space. So what do you think it was that actually tripped the uh, the failsafe? I don't know. That was going to be one of my questions to you. Like, was it just <laughs> that they got out of Earth's atmosphere and whatever signal was able to, like, lock on it? Maybe. Maybe? Yeah. Which kind of leads into the one, one of the fun facts I looked up for this okay. episode. Because yeah. this is sort of like people are like outer space and it's like, where, so like, where does space start? Like, like where, like, what is outer space if we're talking like Earth, like atmosphere wise yeah. and yeah. stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked that up. And uh, so this information is from the National Environmental Satellite Data and Information Service website. And I'm just going to quote what they have because it's better than whatever I could like summarize and put into my own words. <laughs> okay, I'm looking forward so, to it. <laughs> I mean, it's very, it's, it's simple terms, but it's, you know, it's simple enough that I'm like, I can't really explain it any better than they did. So uh, international law states that outer space shall be free for exploration and use by all, but there is no definitive law stating where national airspace actually ends and outer space begins. This leaves the door open for a variety of interpretations. A common definition of space is known as the Karman line, which is an imaginary boundary 100 kilometers or 62 miles above mean sea levels, so like the average sea level. Mm-hmm. In theory, once this 100 kilometer line is crossed, the atmosphere becomes too thin to provide enough lift for conventional aircraft to maintain flight. At this altitude, a conventional plane would need to reach orbital velocity or risk falling back to Earth. Oh, okay. Uh, the world governing body for aeronautic and ast- astronautic records, the Federation, the Federation Aeronautique Internationale, the FAI, oh, okay. mm-hmm. uh, and many other organizations use the Karman line as a way of determining when space flight has been achieved for like records keeping. Okay. However, the U.S. military and NASA define space differently. According of to them, of course, yes. According to them, space starts 12 miles below the Karman line at 50 miles above Earth's surface. Pilots, mission specialists, and civilians who cross this boundary are officially deemed astronauts. In recent years, scientists have tried to determine a definitive edge of space through various studies of the atmosphere. In 2009, researchers at the University of Calgary designed and launched the Suprathermal Ion Imager, an instrument developed to measure the transition between the relatively gentle winds of Earth's atmosphere and the more violent flows of charged particles in space. According to their data, the edge of space begins at 118 kilometers or 73 miles above sea level. So hmm. the, there's no definitive answer, but it's, you know, not they're not too far off from each other as far as what people say. I, I do love how multiple international space societies are like we all concur that space is right about here and the united states is like no 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 that's not where our space is <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i mean it might be interesting sort of you know in coming years as space travel becomes maybe more of a thing like what that does as far as international treaties and mm-hmm. things like that 
Right. We shall see. Air, air rights, things like yes. that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. Okay, we'll have to keep tabs on that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so down in the control room, they don't receive Jack's call because there's interference from the interference from the atmosphere, but they're quickly able to figure out that something has gone wrong. Like this is not something that was done intentionally by either Jack or Tilk. Hammond asks for the shuttle action officer at space command to be contacted, but Sam tells him that a shuttle won't be able to reach them because they're just going too fast. And major Davis advises that with radar from NASA and NORAD, they should be able to get a track on them on them soon so they can reestablish communication. Uh, Jack and Tilk are still trying to get in touch with the SGC and get the 301 back under control. So Tilk attempts a restart when we hear the voice of who? Our favorite Gould Apophis. He says, Shova, to all those who would turn against their God, know this. For your insolence, you will die in the cold of space. What is rightfully mine will now return to me. So, yeah, it seems the glider has been installed with some sort of homing beacon that will return it to Apophis' homeworld. And because it's so far away, they'll just, you know, die on the way there. So, and cool. it is so very apophis too, that he leaves a message. Of course, yes. Instead He's, of just like, nope, nope, it's just going to come back to me and, you know, they'll figure it out eventually. But no, yes. he's like, I have to tell you. All villains must gloat about their plans. It's what they do. Of course. Villain manifesto. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back at the SGC, Daniel's still trying to get a hold of Jack and Tilk. He then suggests contacting allies who do have space capabilities. Excellent idea. So he goes up to take care of that. Vidrine is also going to return to the Pentagon and work the problem from there. Sam has a Hail Mary of an idea, but before she can explain, Jack finally comes over the radio. Sam immediately responds, but there's no more from Jack. And apparently they're far enough away that there is now lag in their communication time which is gonna be fun yes so jack and tilk are like taking stock of their situation they have enough power and life support for a few days but it will take several hundred years to reach apophis's homeworld according to tilk correction here on like every trivia website about this just all of the math in this episode is wrong like all of it just from here like (laughs) it's all wrong (laughs) Uh, it would actually take several thousand years to reach Apophis' homeworld. It would, like, take 15 days to reach Jupiter, not, like, one. So just, it's all wrong, but the just what they say we're just going to go with because that's what's in the episode. So yeah. just know it's all wrong. It's all wrong. <laughs> Especially when Jack just keeps going, carry the four. <laughs> yeah. And not good. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, you know, that's awesome. And Tilk apologizes to Jack as he feels like this is all his fault since the recall device was installed, like, after his betrayal, basically. And uh, Jack just waves him off. And then Daniel's message from earlier finally comes in and Jack replies with their status, but they don't seem yet to have figured out the whole time lag thing on, like, Jack and Tilk's side. Uh, Back from the SGC, Sam sends out a message and explicitly tells them about the time lag. Also, they will be passing close to Jupiter, and she's hoping they might be able to slingshot around somehow and head back towards Earth. She ends the message with the Zulu time to mark when it was sent. Which, in this scenario, Zulu time shouldn't be necessary. So Zulu time is a standardized time used mostly by the military and doesn't change based on time zone. So it's based off Greenwich mean time. 
So like if it's midnight Greenwich Mean Time, it's midnight Zulu. So it's mostly used for when you have people communicating in different time zones, you know, so you don't have to like do the math of it's five o'clock here, what's how was you know, and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But like Jack and Tilk and the SGC are essentially on the same time zone. Like Right. So I mean it sounds cool when they're like, you know, fourteen thirty Zulu, but I don't know if it was really necessary in this scenario. Like it sounds cool in military, but eh. Why doesn't the whole world just use Zulu time? Um, that would make things because so the daylight is a thing. Well, no, you would still have your same daylight. It would just be, you know, 3 a.m. is different to you. 3 a.m. could be your work day. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, that's a very good question. And I don't know. But like the other thing is like having them use Zulu time means Later, when Jack is getting, like, oxygen-deprived, he has to do math because his watch is still set to, like, mountain time. So he has to try and think and calculate mountain time to Zulu time because his watch is probably not set to Zulu time. So you have to try and <laughs> make a man who's oxygen-deprived do math. And that's and carry not great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was impressed that they were able to have the radio signals pass as successfully as they did at all because of how far out they were, you know, coming up on Jupiter. Yeah, I guess they must have been able to get NASA to, like, reconfigure satellites to, you know, bounce the signal back Mm -hmm. and forth as needed. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so after Sam has sent her message is when they receive Jack's message, and it's very staticky and broken up, about how they don't have any control capabilities at all and being under control of the recall device, so it looks like the Purnell maneuver is off the books. Ha, ha, ha. Did nobody gets that? Do you, do you get that joke? No, the I didn't get it. No. Tell me why it's funny. <sighs> it's why from The Martian. It's from The Martian, the Purnell oh. maneuver, when they want to slingshot the space station to go back and pick up Mark Watney. No. Rich Purnell is the guy who comes no. up. Okay. Never read the book and saw the movie quite a while ago. Oh, the book is really good. I like the movie. Yeah. I watch it every so often. It's a good yeah. watch. No. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, maybe I should have made You're it. Smarter. The, the, Car- the Carter maneuver is off the books. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, I love oh. that one. <laughs> but it requires knowledge of the Purnell maneuver to understand why it's the Carter maneuver. Okay. okay. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, Jack and Tilk receive Sam's message about slinging around Jupiter, but Jack just confirms back that they have zero nudging capabilities. <laughs> and Tilk's like, I do not understand nudge as a measurement. Uh, and then Jack's kind of like, we do have two missiles, though. So the missiles it is. Basically, uh, Major Davis and Sam get to work on figuring out the changes that Jack and Tilk will need in order to override whatever safety measures are in place regarding the missiles and how long they'll need to burn the missiles so they can use those as basically like the engines to like adjust their trajectory and hopefully actually slingshot around Mars or Jupiter, not Mars, Jupiter. This is not the Martian. This is <laughs> Different show. Different show. Um, so, which I mean, seems like a good plan, right? It's not a bad yeah, idea. I, I didn't hate it. Yeah. 
so we cut to a bit later and Jack and Tilk are receiving Major Davis's instructions and they get all the changes into like the flight computer and everything and are ready to proceed. So they file missile, they fire missile two to start turning the glider and then they fire the other one to sort of straighten it out a bit. And this is when we get one of our first shots of like, hey, there's Jupiter, like right there. Um, once the missiles have been burned, they eject from the glider, but one of them, for some reason, shoots out ahead and then just, like, falls back into the windshield of the glider. So, yay. Yeah. That was a fun um, camera angle, though. It was, Showing yeah. it coming back. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I noticed this, that for some reason, it takes two hours for the SGC to get the bad news that the missile burn didn't work. If you go back and listen to the sort of the Zulu timestamps that are on the various messages that they relay over the radio, it's been like two hours. So, so I guess sort of give us, you know, the, the time (laughs) lag is getting pretty serious here. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Um, So anyway, so yeah, it didn't work. Unfortunately, Uh, as Sam says, there is no joy on the burn which is apparently like actual military jargon, which mm-hmm. is cool. Uh, so on their current trajectory, they will soon leave the solar system and reach the Oort cloud in a few months, but don't give up because everybody's still working on it. So I did, do you know what, I didn't know what the Oort cloud was. Did you know what the Oort cloud is? I, I mean, it's definitely one of those things, like so many things in my life where I'm like, that tickles me. Like I have learned about it before and definitely did not retain that knowledge. So... <laughs> Would you like to be reinformed about what the Oort cloud is? I would love to. Okay. Uh, so these are facts from the NASA website, which mm-hmm. is very helpful for a lot of things in Stargate. Um, so the Oort cloud is the most distant region of the Milky Way. Uh, even the nearest objects in the Oort cloud are thought to be many times farther from the sun than like the outer reaches of the Kuiper Belt, which is where like our the main asteroid like field in the Milky right. Way. Mm-hmm. Um, Unlike, like, planets and, like, the Kuiper Belt itself, which are mostly, like, in a sort of disk-type, you know, formation, like a flat disk, uh, the Oort cloud is actually believed to be a giant spherical shell that basically surrounds the solar system. Um, Made up of, like, icy pieces of space debris, sizes of mountains, and sometimes larger. Uh, The Oort cloud might contain billions or even trillions of just objects. Uh, the distance from the sun to the Oort cloud is so enormous that it's uh, best described in terms of astronomical units and not like miles or kilometers. So one astronomical unit is the, dis- is the distance between the Earth and the sun. Uh, so for comparison, like Pluto's elliptical orbit carries it as close as 30 astronomical units and as far as 50 astronomical units. The inner edge of the Oort cloud, however, is thought to be between 2,000 and 5,000 astronomical units from the sun. Man, that is a big, big range. Yeah, the outer Ooh. edge uh, might be between 10 and 100,000 astronomical Holy units. Holy crap, that is a big Oort cloud. Yeah, so it's just, yeah, this giant, thick wall of space stuff surrounding the Milky Way. 
that you really don't want to hit with your spaceship. No, I don't think so. No. Probably not. No. no. Although apparently that trope of how in sci-fi movies, whenever anybody enters an asteroid belt, like they're all really, really close together and stuff. Like that's not true. Like asteroid belts are big, but there's like miles between each object and stuff. Hmm. So. Well, that wouldn't be a very interesting space movie. I know. But <laughs> just FYI. Although I would love to see a scene in a space movie where they're like, we're coming up on an asteroid belt. And they get there and they're like, oh. There's okay. one there. It's Five minutes later, fine. hey, there's another one. We're fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so up in the glider. It's a little worse than they thought because while the impact with the missile didn't cause any like physical damage to the ship, like it didn't crack the windshield or anything like that, so it's still airtight, it did damage the power systems and the life support system. Of course it did. Of course it did. Uh, fun fact from the commentary. Uh, so that shot of Jupiter that's behind the ship is a, a real image of Jupiter from one of NASA's probes. That they okay. then uh, project, like, use, like, as a rear screen projection behind to help try and save on visual effects. Um, hmm. Unfortunately, it, it didn't come out quite as clean as they wanted. So they still had to, like, go in and touch it up. And, like, Peter blames himself because he wanted it too big. And so it was still quite pixelated, even though it's sort of, like, blurry in the background. You could still, it wasn't yeah. quite as clean as they needed it to be. So they still had to like go in and like touch it up by hand. So it didn't really well, save a whole lot. How on do visuals. we know that Jupiter isn't pixelated? We don't know. Uh, I mean, I guess that's true, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so back in the SGC up in the briefing room, they're trying to figure out like what to do now. Major Davis recommends shutting down all non-essential systems. And Daniel asks if they can override the recall device somehow. Sam thinks that would be dangerous as it's likely there's a failsafe to prevent such a thing. She thinks the best course of action right now is to maximize life support functions. And Major Davis confirms that the engineers who built the ship are working on such things like scrubbing the CO2 and all of that stuff. Um, so how did Daniel do about getting a ship from their allies that, you know, have spaceships? Uh, oh, oh, I'm going, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say not very well. Uh, correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Tolan don't have anything close enough or fast enough to be able to reach them. As for the Tok'ra, Anise was reluctant to give too many details, but did say that there was a ship within about a day, but it's on like a deep undercover mission and they don't want to risk exposure by making direct contact with the operative that's there. However, it does seem to be implied that the Tok'ra would somehow get the operative who is apparently important to both the SGC and the Tok'ra, the details, and then they'll just go get Jack and Tilk whenever they're done with whatever they're doing there, I think, mm -hmm. is what wink, wink, they were Wink, nudge, nudge. Yes. Hint, so, hint. Which, you know, no, Anise didn't say very much, but maybe she said just enough. Yeah. As Sam says, they know how fast a scout ship can go. And they were also told that it's a Gould-occupied wor world close to Earth. So, oh, let's go research. So, this is also now introducing the fact that there is a Gould-occupied world, like, within two days of Earth. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't know how they just kind of glossed over that one. I but know. They totally did. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Like, 
wait, this is like, wait, they were just there this whole time? The whole time? <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. That one doesn't sound right. That just sounded like convenient writing because I watched bit. it and I was like, oh, what? Yeah. Yeah. So Jack and Tilk work on getting everything shut down. And unfortunately, that's going to include the radio to conserve power. Jack advises that they'll turn the radio back on five minutes before and after the hour. And as he's sending out that message, the call comes in from Daniel, who tells them about the possible Tokra rescue and also cautions them against trying to disable the recall device. Down in the control room, they believe they've identified the planet where the Tok'ra operative is, P2C257. Uh, SG-14 had apparently spent some time there observing a mining operation and went undetected, so Sam's like, we can do that too. And Hammond's like, well, how will you identify the operative? And it's like, well, Ani said it was someone who was important to both the SGC and the Tok'ra, so gee... I wonder who that could be. Who could it be? Uh, and Martuf is dead, so. Uh, so True. Sam and Daniel have a go. And Hammond calls up to Jack and Tilk to let them know that the plan is in motion, but they'll have to hang on for 24 hours. Tilk comments to Jack that current life support will not last 12. So they're pushing it. Uh, they, so they didn't report back to the SGC about that. Or did they? No, they did. No. No, I don't think they hours. did. I don't no. think they did. No. Uh, so out on 257, Sam and Daniel are observing what's going on and what sort of the best way to get into the ship will be when there's suddenly a bright light over them and we hear the sound of a ring transporter activating. Oops. Uh-oh. So they're now like in the cargo hold of a ship and Sam draws her gun as the door opens to the cargo bay and it's Jacob. Yay! Did Yay. not see that coming. I who would have thought. No. Uh, he is uh, not too pleased to see them as he was about to blow a huge chunk out of the planet with like some weapons great Naquita and he's like my ship was cloaked. Not anymore. Thanks to you guys. And he's like, why are you here? Like, he is mad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, he is not too pleased. So Sam tells him what's going on with Jack and Tilk. And he's like, cool, got it. Let's go. Like, there's just zero hesitation, which I like. He's like, why are you here? Oh, they're in trouble. Okay, let's go. Yep, let's do it. That's all he needs. Yeah. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. So the SGC has received word from Sam and Daniel, but Davis has done some calculations and is worried that they won't reach Jack and Tilk in time. Ooh. Um, do you find it odd at all that they didn't mention trying to contact the Asgard? Well, the we can't because they're in another galaxy and we don't have enough power to contact them. Yeah, well, okay, I guess it's fine. Just come, come up with a logical answer. I, do I think found it I, weird. I mean, I do think it's interesting that at least I don't I don't think we have, you know, like the Tolan had given us like that sort of direct communication device thing that we don't have like a, a non-Stargate method of contacting the Asgard. That is a little strange. If we're supposed to be allies and we're part of the Protected Planets Treaty, how are we supposed to get a hold of the Asgard if we need their help? That is very strange. Am I forgetting something? Somebody will tell me. Somebody's probably yelling. Yes. Somebody has to visit me because we all know I don't remember anything. <laughs> yeah. At least, I mean, I don't think so. But 
if we have forgotten, please let us know. <laughs> so up in the glider, uh, things are getting bleak. And Tilk says he's going to place himself into a very deep state of Kelnorim to help lower their oxygen requirements. And Jack jokes that he won't have anyone to talk to. And Tilk goes, which, I mean, I got I got a little choked up here. I'll be honest. Like, this was, this was a very touching scene between these two it guys. It was. It was a good one. Uh, so Tilk says, there is little to say, O'Neill. We have fought and won many battles together. It has been an honor to serve the Towery by your side. We are brothers. Aww. And... Jack can't really say anything besides back at you. And Tilk gets himself into the Kelno Ream, and Jack is basically by himself floating in space. Which... You just get trapped with your own thoughts there. That's a bad place yeah. to be. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, up in the scout ship, they're traveling at 132% of their maximum speed, which I never, whenever anybody says that, I'm like, how? How? how do you like, go over 100%? How, how, I know. How do you go over 100%? I don't know. I don't, like, I, I don't know. Um, so Selmac then comes out for a second and asks how they didn't know about the recall device. And they're like, how could we? Apparently it's a recent thing because of Tilt's whole betrayal and everything. And uh, uh, apparently the Tok'ra did know about it mm. and they didn't say anything and like well the SGC didn't tell the Tok'ra what they were planning on doing with like the glider and like why can't these people just talk to each other okay. yeah it's, <laughs> politics are so stupid it really is uh, so anyway uh, how are they going to get Jack and Tilk out of the ship if they're able to get there in time and Daniel's like can't you just like like beam them out and Jake is like I'm not Scotty <laughs> what do you want me to do uh, and then, uh, Sam has an idea as she always does, but they're probably not going to like it. And I'm noticing, I don't know if it's just because it's happened twice in this particular episode, but it's becoming like a trope of the show where Sam's like, I have an idea cut to the next scene where we don't get an explanation of the idea, like, which is fine oh, because when yeah. it comes time for the idea to be put into action, we get what the idea is then, but it's just... Again, I don't know if it's just because it's happened twice in this episode, but it's like, Sam's like, I have an idea. Cut to the next scene. And it's like. And half the time it's, I have an idea and you're not going to like it. Yes. It's like, do we get to know what that is or do we have to wait? Apparently we have to wait. Anyway, again, I don't know. Not necessarily bad. Just hmm, that's interesting that Mm -hmm. that's become a thing. Um. We get a brief call from Jack back to base with his status and Peter DeLuise in the commentary, just like many accolades to Richard Dean Anderson for his acting in the scene. And he's like, there's a reason his name is above the title. I was like, yep, mm-hmm. yeah. absolutely. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, and I went back to check the sort of the Zulu timestamps that we've had. And apparently it's been about 14 hours since the last like time check that we've gotten on screen. So... Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not looking good so for that Jack. two hours past the marker where they thought they were going to run out of oxygen? Uh, yes. Ooh, okay. So, yeah, they're like, they're cutting it close, for sure. Okay. Back with Jacob and the crew, uh, the ship is sounding like it's under a lot of strain. And Jacob and Sam get into an argument about messing around with super advanced technology. And Sam's getting all offended about Jacob saying how they're like infantile and you can't just like take technology. And Daniel's like, well, didn't the Gould and therefore the Tok'ra steal everything that they have? He's like, yeah, but, you know, we've been doing this for hundreds of years and it's basically just ours now. And it's like, "Mm." I mean, like, 
<laughs> no, that was a bad. Yeah. yeah. I was totally on Sam's side with that one. A little. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how dare you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's then the sound of like, not quite an explosion, but some kind of just like, whoom, kind of noise and the ship starts shaking and. Uh, whoom. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Is that, is that, that good? Didn't work. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and um, they've overtaxed the drives and Jacob doesn't like where they've stopped because he had mentioned earlier, like, this is apparently like the bad neighborhood of the galaxy to stop in. I'm and... imagining, you know, in all of my star things, <laughs> brain immediately takes me to the Star Wars cantina. <laughs> <laughs> Moss Eisley Spaceport. Yes. Now we're finding more wretched eyes of scum and villainy. Oh, yes. Gosh. Um, so, and, <laughs> and oh, hey, look, there's two gold motherships. Yay. Yay. Uh, so just FYI, like all of the exterior space stuff in like this and then later when we come back to here is like reused from other episodes. Oh, of course it is. Of course it is, because they had it, and it's just, it's a Gould mothership. They already have Gould motherships. Why do they need yep. a new one? Because um, as we've discussed before, there's one designer that said, this is yep. what look we're going through now. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, so Daniel confirms that he can speak with the Gould dialect, so Jacob tells him how to use the communication system uh, that will make his voice sound like a Gould, and to just, like, make something up while he and Sam go try and fix the engines. It's like, Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the SGC has received Jack's last message. And again, just really good acting from Don and Colin here. Like Colin's like on the verge of tears or something because they're basically listening to Jack die, which is horrible. Like how, how do you deal with that? That must just be like horrific. Uh, And Hammond tells Davis not to respond and to just let Jack sleep since they don't have any news to share anyway. Yeah. Uh, so Daniel and one of the Gould are having an argument or something. And luckily the repairs are done quickly. And that's good because Daniel doesn't think that they bought his story of being the great and powerful Oz. <laughs> <sighs> of all of the things. <laughs> well, I mean, if you had to riff and be like, I am the great and powerful uh, Oz. Yeah. I mean, really, could you do any better? I don't know if I could. Yeah. Um, so we see gliders start leaving the mothership just as the repairs are done and they manage to jump back into hyperspace. Yay. So at the SGC, Hammond wants to send one last message to Jack when Sam comes over the radio and tells them they're about four minutes away. Great. Yay. Um, so... Uh, a quick thing from the commentary before we get into the next scene. So the scout ship, uh, like cockpit and the glider were actually on set together. So when there's that camera shot sort of shooting over the glider into the cockpit, that's not CG. That's like, I mean, there is some CG to make the scout ship bigger because it's just, you know, the little cockpit area. But like the people are there. (laughs) Like, I like that. I'm like, oh, that was cool, yeah, because I thought it was yeah. like they shot the glider and then they shot this ship and then they like put them together, but no, they're yeah. just they're in the same space. So it's always helpful to the actors when you get to do that. Yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So they've reached the glider. Jack's not responding. Tilk's not responding. Everybody's unconscious. So Jack gives the glider a little nudge, which I think this might be the most instances of the word nudge in an episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there was the earlier, like, nudge the glider. Anyway, uh, this does manage to jostle Jack awake, and he is extremely disoriented from the lack of oxygen and manages to be actually kind of funny in a very serious situation, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which helps kind of lighten things a little bit. Um, And they manage to get Jack to wake up Tilk by uh, Jack throwing a pen at his head, (laughs) bouncing off his helmet. Uh, Luckily, Tilk is a little more coherent and confirms that their oxygen and the cabin pressure is very low at this point. So here's where we get the plan to get them out of the glider. Basically, they want Jack and Tilk to blow the canopy off the ship, then push off out of the cockpit and away so Jacob can use the ring transporter to get them on board, which is dangerous, but it should only be for a few seconds, which is fine because you can... Uh, not die in outer space as long as for as long as it's for like a few seconds like you don't instantly explode or decompress your blood doesn't boil like all of that stuff that sort of sci-fi tropey is actually like not what would actually happen to you so this plan is actually scientifically feasible oh that's good to know yes except for the math Well, luckily, there's no math in this particular (laughs) scenario. Lives working. (laughs) Yes. So the scout ship repositions itself above the glider. They give the okay to blow the canopy. Jack and Tilk don't push off from the cockpit. They just kind of gently float. I know. It was like pushed off away from the cockpit, and then they just sort of gently float. I don't don't know. I noticed that, too. Um, but anyway, but it's fine. The transport rings get them and they're on board and alive, mostly well, but most importantly, they are alive. And it's just, I just have to, it's funny when they get transported and they like appear in the cargo bay, they're they're standing up because that's how they were when they were transported in and then they just fall over. Yeah. (laughs) Because I mean, of course they would. Um, And we're done. Yep. Um, but the SGC gets the news that they're all alive and well. The whole control room erupts into applause. And as Peter calls it, they throw the joy paper. <laughs> I, I saw that and I was like, oh, my God, somebody has to pick that up now. I know. That is there were apparently of classified paperwork. They were apparently meeting about why are they throwing papers? Like, because that's what you do. <laughs> I have never done that in my life out of joy. I have never thrown paper no. out of joy, usually because I am the one that has to pick it up. I like, know. Hell no. <laughs> but anyway, but yay, everybody's fine. Okay. Major Davis gets back over the radio to congratulate everyone on the ship for a job well done and bring our boys home. And it is the end. Yay. I think that's referred to as the joy paper, though. <laughs> Well, because they were talking about how early there was no joy on the burn. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of like riffed on that for a while back in the commentary. So then this there was joy. So it's the joy paper. Yes, joy paper. Yeah. Yes. I like that. Uh, um, one final fun fact. This episode was nominated for a Gemini Award for Best Visual Effects. Oh, fun. Yes. And so oh, we should find out what actually won. 
if it was just. Oh, I didn't look that up. Let me let me see if I can find that out. Um, let's see. This was aired in two thousand. This is probably the two thousand one Gemini Awards. Let's see, two thousand one Gemini Award winners. Uh, <laughs> nope, not that page. Oh, here we go. Let's best visual. I hope it at least. I hope it at least uh, lost to like X Files or something. <laughs> um, it lost to Nuremberg. Hmm. I don't know what that is. If that was a new, no, I don't know if that's a series or a miniseries, but yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. And unfortunately, lost to Nuremberg. All right. Well, poo. Yep. But yay, they were. It's an honor just to be nominated. Rachel, don't you know? <laughs> so true. Uh, okay. Um, do you have any memos for us this week? I do. I very much think they should have done a lot more testing before they actually took the ship out into the air. Uh, or at least when they were, um, you know, taking apart and figuring out the technology, like figuring out what all the little things do trying to think of how to concisely put this but anyway i think because when in the very very beginning when they're you know doing the first test of the Mm -hmm. ship and carter is explaining like the hovering technology and she she literally says like we don't understand all the physics but (laughs) yeah (laughs) and it's like why why are you why are you testing a spaceship when you're like we don't know how it works it's just like like something tells me that if they're going to actually include this thing in their fleet to defend themselves from annihilation you would know what all the buttons do yeah and all that stuff so that is my there you go that is my memo know what all the buttons do know what all the buttons do got it because that was a big old big old thing to me (laughs) she just literally said we don't understand how the physics work but (sighs) yeah uh luckily the x302 is a little bit better um which we'll get later um okay so episode title tangent um so there's sort of two main definitions for tangent one is the sort of geometric or like mathematical uh, definition, which is a straight line or plane that touches a curve or a curved surface at a point, but if extended, does not cross it at that point. So it's like you have a circle and then a line sort of like touching the edge of it, but not like mm-hmm. crossing it. So that maybe has to do with the sort of, you know, attempted slingshot around Jupiter that ended up being like they just ended up on a tangent to Jupiter. Uh, But the other definition, this is Merriam-Webster's definitions, is a completely different line of thought or action. And that basically this whole plan went off on a tangent once the recall device thing went off. So Yeah, that's that's more of what stuck out in my brain. Yes. Uh, As far as foreign territories, foreign territory titles... Uh, We do have some fun ones this week, Um, both French and Italian translated as Lost in Space. Oh. Uh, Czech was the experimental flight. Okay. Hungarian was trajectory, which is sort of, you know, similar to tangent. I like that one. Uh, And then German was rescue in space. Rescue in space. Yes. I like that one. Okay. That's a good title. 
Yeah. Um, okay, so final thoughts on this episode before we get into the email. Well, I wonder if the email and my thoughts on this episode are actually related, because although you haven't read said email, you gave a little little taste of what's in the email. Okay. So this episode stuck out to me very much in the context of the conversations we kind of have ongoing with the whole Jack and Carter shipping Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how the thought to us is generally like them being together is great we have nothing against it but it seems that they only put in any sort of like romantic chemistry between them when it is literally part of the plot line when okay usually what would have made it awesome is if this you know uh, if it was an ongoing thing almost made a separate character in the room and for this like if Carter is on a spaceship to go save the guy she loves and they pull up to the ship and she sees that he's still alive and everything's going to be okay and they're going to save them, there should totally be some sort of subtext on her face of like, oh my God, he's alive, yay. That She doesn't have to say anything, but like it should be all over her face of like, thank God this man is alive. He's going to stay like, you. but there's nothing. It's just like, okay. we're going to bring you in, sir. It's gonna, <laughs> we're going to save you. It's going to be great. Like there's, there's nothing. So it's a primary okay. example of like what we have talked about before, I think. Okay. So the email actually does touch on that. So right. uh, this is from Andrew from the UK who emailed a couple weeks ago, sort of talking about, um, the episode where Daniel's in the mental hospital mm-hmm. for a while uh, and stuff there. Um, I'm going to sort of summarize what he says. So basically one, one way of looking at what this show is and what the episodes are is that their stories, the, the episodes are retellings of mission reports. So like Jack would never write in a mission report. I have feelings for Sam unless that was an integral part to something that happened in the mission, like what happened in like upgrades and divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. So the reason we don't see it in every episode is because like here, Sam's feelings about Jack were not important to what was happening on the mission. Okay. So if we're taking it from just, you know, the mission reports of SG-1 were compiled by somebody and then made into a TV series. Mm-hmm. That's why we're getting that. And that then he an goes... to look at it. Yeah. yeah. And then he goes on to explain, to add to it, that might also explain how we have that issue of, like, aliens and the concepts of time and how, like, they understand what hours and months and days are. It's like, because... You wouldn't write, like, you know, an alien said it would took 12 parsecs. You would translate that to, like, what Earth terms would be applicable in a mission report. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have aliens talking about hours and days and years and Earth terms, because that's what was written in the mission report. I find that so interesting. I like that point of view. Is that, like, a thing? I don't know. I've actually, I've never heard this sort of perspective before, but it's really, really really interesting. What's the name of the person that wrote this? Andrew from the UK. Andrew, that's so cool. I know. I might have to ask Brie about this and be like, what? Like, cause I mean, you know, I've been a fan of the show for how long? And I've like, 
Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen this point of view like anywhere, which mm-hmm. I think is really, really, really interesting. And I think I'm going to have to like keep in mind for like the next few episodes and see how that pans out. And it makes our memos even more relevant then. <laughs> it does because then it would be somebody replying to the mission report going, you idiot. <laughs> um, but yeah, but yes. I thought, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. That is very interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, that could even totally be um, uh, one way to think about why it seems the different episodes take on different tones because it would be different people's mission reports. Yeah, like maybe this was mainly like, you know, Jackson's Jack and Sam's mission reports or something, but another episode could be like Daniel's mission report. And yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. I, I think I kind of like it. I like it. That's a very cool way to look at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Andrew, you're cool. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. That's very cool. Yeah, we like it a lot. Thanks for sharing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, any other final thoughts then? <laughs> no, I think Andrew really did a good conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, you can find us on Twitter at SG underscore Rewatch or send us an email at woo. That's W-O-O-S-G-Rewatch at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review us, please. And we will see you next time for The Curse. (gasps) Oh, man. Bye. Bye. Bye.